0: Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley.
1: Welcome today to the Commercial Disco and welcome to Michael Biersick, the professor of quantum physics and quantum technology at Sydney University, and more recently, CEO and founder of Q Control, the quantum startup. Michael, welcome. I wanted to start today with news, I suppose. Last Friday, the federal government unveiled a, a miscalculation in their, the support package over coronavirus and specifically on JobKeeper. We have now find that we'll be spending $60 billion less. I wonder if you've got a view on the way that universities have been largely excluded from JobKeeper and whether you think you can find a, a home for that $60 billion if it were to be spent?
0: Well, indeed. I mean, I'm I'm a little sympathetic to the government in that this seems like it was very much an administrative issue rather than a policy issue that emerged. Now, I guess the question is, what what do we do next? There's a an underspend, I suppose, of, of this pretty reasonable amount. And in the intervening time between when JobKeeper was announced and now this discovery, we have learned that there are gaps in the coverage. There are a lot of people in the arts, casual employees, long-term casual employees, who, based on the structure of the policy, are excluded and are clearly suffering based on the economic impacts. And just trying to reopen faster doesn't resolve those problems because the jobs are gone. Universities fall into a similar boat in some ways, that they were excluded initially, and then through subsequent revisions of the policy, were more or less guaranteed to be kept out by some, what you could call, moving goalposts. Uh, Obviously, I think this is not the best way to set policy. I think certainty is the most important thing Whenever we're trying to craft policy, you hear from the business community all the time, and universities, I think, are entitled to the same kind of certainty. They met the rules. They were entitled to claim under the rules of JobKeeper, and then the rules were changed just to make sure they could not claim it. I'm not going to get into why that happened. I would say it's not the best way to execute policy. And now that we understand where we are in terms of the budgetary impact of this particular program, and we've seen the effects on various sectors like people are starting to be stood down at certain universities or, or required to find extra work right outside of their typical FTE, even as academics, that it makes sense to revisit the early decisions made across sectors. And I think, you know, universities should be included in that.
1: It's a shame uh, you won't get into why that policy is the way it is, because that was going to be my next question. But I, I guess everyone will have their own view on why governments do these yeah. things.
0: I like to talk about things for which I have evidence, and I have no evidence one way or another. All I know is that the goalposts moved a lot.
1: I guess I would ask this, given the difficulties with foreign students right now, and it does seem that universities are getting a kind of a a double whammy. If we have kind of across industries calls for greater funding of innovation, greater funding of research. And that would that would include funding going to, to universities. Is that a way to provide that kind of support or is it a completely separate issue? Well, I do
0: think it's useful as a completely general statement to segregate issues of the acute crisis going on right now, this public health emergency that engenders major economic and negative impacts from the long-term policy positions that we take. Now, obviously, you know, we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. We should revisit things. I think we're still a little bit in the uh, in the crisis mode. Taking a step back, however, I would say that there has been a pretty sustained assault in Australia and around the world in Western democracies on funding levels from the public sector to universities. This spans research, general budgets and the like. And a lot of the challenges we see in innovation policy in commercialization and the like, really, frankly, could be largely fixed by returning to historic levels of public sector support for a public good organization like a university. And I think ultimately, that's something that we want to revisit uh, in policy.
1: So I guess I'm going to talk now, I'm going to ask you now about this CSI roadmap, quantum roadmap, which is interesting, because just to the point you've made just now, the roadmap and I guess the funding cuts that you've referred to arrive at a time when globally investment in quantum research that's is right. going through the roof. Like that's it, right. It, it has really taken off, particularly I think last two, three years. So there we are. First of all, so Kathy Foley, the chief scientist at CSIRO is saying for Australia, there's a potential $4 billion industry and 16,000 high value employees by 2040. I think that's $86 billion globally which would give us around 5% of that market, which is which is more of the market than what we, we would normally get in a new area. Can I ask you, firstly, what do you think of those numbers? And secondly, what's your view on how we maximize Australia's participation in that new industry? Well, I think the first comment I want to make
0: that even underlines all of that is we've heard a lot about uh, the cyber roadmap and we've heard about how Cathy and her team have put this forward. That actually paints kind of the wrong picture of what happened. And I don't mean this to undermine Kathy or CSIRO in any way, but actually to build up that this is not a top-down governmental entity saying this is how we're going to proceed. This was completely bottom-up driven, where the community got together and asked Siro to lead this initiative as an impartial third party who could do a dispassionate evaluation of the global situation, of the Australian situation, and make policy recommendations. So this is important, I think, because it means that the community is behind this effort. This is not being foisted upon us. Now, as to the particular numbers, I think they did a not unreasonable economic analysis. It's aligned with a variety of other predictions that have been put out by organizations like BCG. Question, of course, is how much Australia captures, and that's highly, highly dependent on what policy settings we have, right? It could all go offshore this year or next year. That's totally possible if we get the policy prescriptions wrong but the most important takeaway message is how much potential there is and i frankly think that the capture rate could be way higher if we just got you know, ahead of ourselves and took advantage of the long-term strategic investment that's been made in australia instead of playing a nationalist game a lot of the discussion becomes you know let's build a wall around everything and make it australians uh, you know australian technology for australians that's it's just a nonsense proposition for global technology q control the company i run only one customer in Australia, we have a a lot of customers overseas, and that's based on the nature of the work that we're doing. So having this open perspective uh, is, I think, going to be an essential part of ensuring that
1: we capture value, and we really have a huge opportunity to do so. So just let's look historically just for a minute. Australia has developed considerable quantum talent and capability, I guess you'd say, certainly in the, the research phase. How did that come about? For a start, so if you look at that historically, like how did we get into this position before we start talking about how we capture uh, where we are? Serendipity and vision. You know, I think
0: it's how it always is. It really goes back to the 1990s with the development of this algorithm called Shor's algorithm. That was the first big potential theoretical algorithm to be run on quantum computers, this new kind of computer. That led to the development of a really big funding initiative in the United States that was sponsored by the National Security Agency. The NSA, it's one of these uh, security agencies, but it was their first ever public funding. It was university research that they were going to support, totally open to ask the question whether this kind of computer could really be built. And at the time, there was a lot of very good, what you would just traditionally call condensed matter physics or atomic physics, optical physics in Australia. And one or two really visionary people who had been doing work that was related to what later became quantum computing People like Jared Milburn and, and Bob Clark saw an opportunity to build something domestically to, to unify the capabilities that were onshore and then respond to these global calls for research proposals. So Bob Clark led research submission to the NSA. It was successful. He then leveraged that to get matching funds from the Commonwealth government in Australia. This was you know a lot of money at the time. It was many, many millions of dollars, which was way different than the scale you would see in Australian Research Council funding, et cetera. And that became the precursor in the late 90s, 97, I think, of what would later become the Center for Quantum Computer Technology at UNSW, which is now led by Bob's successor, uh, Michelle Simmons. Now, in the intervening time, the strength of that research and the participation of Australian researchers in a really big U.S.-led but global program built the profile of Australians in quantum computing in particular. I mean, the Australians who would traditionally perhaps go to Australian research agencies were now going to a global funding pool with talent from all over the world. And we would get together once a year. Now, I was funded as a PhD student under this program. I was then later funded as a primary investigator at, in my faculty role under the same program. And in fact, I came to Australia because I got to know David Riley, who was a postdoc at UNSW at the time, he's now a professor at Sydney and runs the Microsoft effort. It was the entry of Australian researchers into that global program that really set the ball rolling for the next two decades, really. And it brings us to where we are today.
1: That's a fascinating history. So first of all, the Australian government at some point had to place a large bet and it did this kind of bottom up because a couple of researchers had pressed that case. Is that fair to say? That's my understanding, yes. And then from an intelligence agency perspective, without going too deep into it, that's obviously a, a national security priority across, you know, Five Eyes Alliance partners. Yeah, but I want, to be, I want to be clear.
0: This was not any kind of Five Eyes program. It was not a secret program. 100% open university research all over the world. And it turns out some of the bigger players were non-traditional research actors. Australia was one. Austria was another,
1: right? Leveraging capability that they had as well. So, but, so to my understanding, this was DARPA. So no, NSA. Still, NSA, not NSA. DARPA. Okay. Okay. So a big bet on a big new thing. And here we are 15 or 20 years later, and it seems to be going quite well. So what, from your point of view, as someone who's, who kind of straddles startup and research, and obviously deep tech, what's the next immediate step? And then what's a medium term?
0: In terms of the roadmap, I think we really need a funding allocation and we need to do it in a strategic way. The biggest concern that I have, well, I guess I have two concerns. One is that nothing happens, right? That's obviously quite possible given the current economic climate. The other possibility is that Australia takes a really nationalist perspective, says everything is internal, and then they build what you could uh, pejoratively call an armada of canoes. They take a big pot of money and then they divide it up. They give 100000 to you and 100000 to you and 100000 to you and 100000 to you to make sure all the Australian groups get a little bit so nobody is politically put out. Uh, and then nothing happens because $100,000 a year does zero in, a, in any kind of research or business setting. But that's the, the traditional approach. We need to be willing to say this is a winning area but not so myopic to say that there will be only one winner. Because if there is only one winner, then everybody loses, right? We've missed an opportunity. Even in the United States, you have giant tech companies like Google, Microsoft, IBM, and AWS all competing against each other for this. Competition is an important part of this, both domestically and internationally. And we need to make sure that we foster an entire diverse ecosystem that spans people building hardware People building applications, you know, software, and then all the things in between, the, the kind of infrastructure software that we build, control engineering solutions, new kinds of technology and the like. All of that needs to be supported in a big way.
1: So I guess there's two sides to that. When you're talking about a, an increase in funding, you're talking about to the actual researchers, like to the core researchers, but you're also talking about to the commercialization effort. I mean, yeah, when, you, when you talk about AWS and Google, the commercial enterprises, it's a different thing, right?
0: Well, uh, so I am not talking about just boosting research. That is part of the equation. It's important that the academic sector have a, a critical role here. But what really is missing is the bridging into the commercial side. And what you see in places like the United States with very successful major deep tech integration into, say, defense or intelligence communities, is that the government is an early customer. The government provides either bridging support by direct things like SBA, small business authority loans, or small business authority grants, and it becomes a purchaser of the technology produced by those organizations. In the UK, the quantum technology, I can't remember what it's called, hub or roadmap or whatever it was, set up, yes, that there would be research funding, no doubt, it's part of the equation, but there would also be a large tranche of funding to support early stage startups who wanted to commercialize either totally new concepts or things that were emerging from public sector research. Those are the organizations that, frankly, have the largest probability of delivering economic prosperity, despite the importance that's always there of long-term academic open research. We do need support for this new kind of translational research, which has never really been supported well in Australia.
1: Yeah, so two things there. I guess government has, in this country anyway, has not been great as a buyer of locally produced technology, and that goes across lots of industries and is a source of great frustration to many. But can I, okay, two, two things. Firstly, who's your uh, only customer in Australia? Is that something that you can talk about? And is it a government customer?
0: No, it's a private sector customer, but uh, no, I'm not at liberty to talk about okay, that. Private
1: time. sector customer. Okay, so just in terms of that funding model, when you talk about supporting the translation or commercial translation are you talking about funding that would sit somewhere between what would be a university grant and a main sequence like is it more money to a vc a government supported vc or is there a stage now in my
0: view in my view the early motion for the commonwealth government to be a limited partner in main sequence was extremely valuable it made a statement about government priorities it made a statement about what could be done in Australia, but I don't think there's any shortage of LP funding to venture capital organizations right now. That's not the issue. What is an issue is if you're going to start deep tech companies, right, and do private sector venture capital like we have at Q Control, there is an expectation of certain time horizons. There's an expectation of product development as well as commercial sales and engagement as the company grows. But when it's deep tech focused, when it's not selling wine by a mobile application or something. When it's deep tech focused and there can be potentially two or three or four years of ongoing research and development, not just to commercialize something, but to continue building capability that really makes it a commercially viable product as opposed to an idea or an early prototype with commercial potential. That's where research funding is essential. And that's where in the US there are things like the SBIR program, STTR, uh, Small Business Innovative Research Program, that give million dollar, multi million dollar scale grants to individual performers in order to do this commercialization translation process of advanced technology. Now, there are similar things in Australia like the CRCP but they're unnecessarily onerous in my view in terms of the structure. They, you must involve this many university researchers, you must involve two SMEs plus one organization that's above 100. You know, all these rules mean that you're just doing administrative tap dancing instead of solving the problem that you wanna solve. And sometimes a small business has an idea that they can commercialize and translate themselves. They don't need a research partner at a university to help them with it. They've got the internal talent. But a million dollars would totally change their long-term commercial prospects and turn them in from a company that, you know, maybe will last two or three years with five people into a company that employs a thousand people down the line. You know, this reasonably small amounts of money can be transformative for early businesses.
1: So let's move to Q-Control now properly. Can I just ask you what, like your personal journey toward starting that company you were obviously a professor at research at Sydney. You're doing this stuff. You're building software and building a machine in order to do your research. And then you've, you've taken that out. Is that a reasonable snapshot?
0: Uh, kind of. I was, I was a professor of quantum physics and quantum technology at the University of Sydney. I'm an experimentalist, so we would build things. We would build quantum computers. We're funded by this NSA program that I've talked about for years, many others as well. And in the context of doing research, towards the development of useful quantum computers, we discovered and developed a number of capabilities that we deemed valuable. Now, at the time in in 2017, I was very strongly of the opinion that venture capital moved a little bit too early in uh, in quantum technology and quantum computing in particular. I remain of the view that venture capital probably moved too early. But once it started moving, the finger is out of the dam as they say, And I made a decision that I had to move then. So in mid-2017, after talking with a number of investors around the place, I started talking more seriously with Main Sequence about what a targeted commercial activity could look like. And that was the genesis of Q-Control, focused on control engineering products and services for quantum technology.
1: So I guess this is my question. Like, did you have a fortuitous meeting with someone who was a commercialization expert or were you in a program that was formalized? Nope. Did you always have a, a desire to commercialize some of this tech? Like, nope. I mean, even as a professor, I would imagine there are professors out there who would not necessarily recognize commercial value in something they've developed wouldn't really care necessarily a great deal if there was. That would be for someone yeah, else. Yeah, it's, because
0: it's for someone else. Because we need a diversity of personalities and activities, right? If everybody just did commercialization, nobody would solve problems that matter 50 years from now. Yeah. So I didn't go through any programs, no accelerators, nothing like that. I had this idea of brewing, and I actually went to a meeting in Munich. And it was a venture capital meeting across the quantum industry sponsored by a VC And it had everybody there who you might call a little bit maybe commercially minded or industrially minded. My peers from around the world, you know, a a set of them who are less pure research focused. And what that meeting indicated to me was that times had changed, that the field was transitioning from pure academic research into something different. And if I wanted to ever have a piece of it, now was the time. And so I came back from that meeting. And the next day, actually, I think I wrote an email while I was there to the main sequence guys. I said, I want to do this. I want to do it right now. And that was in June. We announced the company as we announced closing of the capital round November 2nd. So in a very short period of time, we went from, hey, I want to do something to company exists,
1: start hiring. Here's money. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. It was fun. I, it's kind of fortuitous that Main Sequence was even there. Was it was. I think you were oh. the first cohort of. Uh,
0: yeah, that's uh, right. Uh,
1: that's right. We were. We were. I don't know if we were the first deal they
0: closed, but we were within the first one or two or three that they closed. It was absolutely fortuitous. But the fact is, it came down to being able to talk to investors who understood that as someone coming from academia, a I had a different experience. B I had different motivations. Right. I was not. You know. There's a joke I use a lot that in the US, there are these things called credit reports, right? You can get your credit report from uh, you know, Equifax or whatever, and you're entitled to a free one every year. But the joke I make is uh, you know, you can make a lot of money selling free credit reports to old ladies who don't know they can get them for free. And I actually saw a lot of consumer tech in that light, that a lot of it is just nonsense. And yeah, people will get rich, there's no question. But it had absolutely zero appeal to me and finding investors who understood what did appeal to me building really you know transformative technology in the private sector solving extremely hard problems meeting those people was the most important bit
1: and that's a uh, uh, you know I'd hate to say capital's not a problem for you because i suppose everyone can have have more capital in a venture like this but in terms of your vc partners inketel from silicon valley uh, main sequence, Horizons, the uh, Hong Kong Lee Ka Shing's vehicle, Square Peg, Australian Sierra, and Excel. I... Uh,
0: Sierra, Sierra is in Silicon Valley and uh, Sequoia Capital.
1: Sequoia Capital yeah. in uh, in Silicon Valley. So that's quite a roster. The the latest announcement was Inkytel, and we've spoken about this before. But it it does circle us back to kind of the an intelligence community related entity.
0: Yeah, I mean, inQtel is a uh, not-for-profit investor whose initial client years ago and initial funding body was the CIA, and then it became a multi-entity, multi-agency organization that ensures that the technology being developed in the private sector has visibility within the government.
1: Right, and which is exactly what where you would like the visibility to be, anyway.
0: Well, I think it's, it's pretty clear that in quantum technology, government support in defense and intelligence communities is going to be important. It's not just in, in quantum computing, it's in quantum sensing and uh, standoff detection, all these things. Government engagement will be essential.
1: Okay. And can I ask you on that, does main sequence play that role? Like it is slightly different. It's out of a, the kind of the national research agency, but and it's kind of managed by what would be private sector VC. So, so no, they're not the same. Main sequence is a
0: private sector venture capital limited partnership they 're a VC Their initial LP was the siro and then you know they they raised like one hundred million dollars from CIRO, and I think they 've raised one hundred and fifty million from non-CIRO entities, so their majority not Cyro, but they do maintain by virtue of how they were started and the mandate to support public sector research translation they maintain a close relationship with Cyro and they provide Advice to different government bodies. I'll let them talk to you more about how cool. they work. InQtel has a slightly different role. They have a different strategic mandate. They are not a VCLP in the standard way, in that they're a not for profit. Different structures, but they both have a role to play in ensuring translation of public sector research, but also ensuring that private sector technology is visible within the government.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I think Incatel, they they're not for profit in so much as they're not expected to return money to shareholders. Obviously, the shareholder being their original shareholders, they, they just reinvest. It has become a self-perpetuating fund is sure. I mean, and been very successful doing it.
0: And Horizons actually does the same thing. Horizons is a foundation. It's the Li Ka-Shin Foundation. And Horizons is exceptionally successful early investments in Spotify and Zoom, like all these tremendous companies uh, and Facebook as well. And all of that capital gets reinvested because it's a foundation. Every single dollar goes right back into the foundation. It's pretty amazing. Um, But yeah, this model, it can work, especially when we're talking about deep tech and very long-term projects. Horizons wants to change the world. That's what they want to do. And we fit nicely, uh, fortunately, in that uh, view of the world. But InQtel has been important to us because they've also been part of a, an initiative to take the InQtel model, which is very successful in the United States, and through a trilateral relationship with the UK and Australia, help bring those lessons abroad. So InQtel actually works directly with the Australian government as well in helping them understand what we do.
1: Yeah, look, and that would be incredibly valuable, I guess, to you, but also to other deep tech providers. That was going to be my next question. How do you find that translator between deep tech startup and government in Australia? And in particular, can you talk to me about the defense sector, which I would think, you know, might have an interest in this area? Yeah, I think this is new to Australia. That's the most important
0: message, that the trilateral relationship behind this in Australia, US, UK thing is based on the premise that there are lessons to be learned. So first of all, it's fantastic that the Australian public sector is recognizing that everything is not uh, perfect as it is. I think that the biggest thing we see is that government has not been a customer of domestic technology, as you described earlier, and that the timescales associated with engagement with the private sector are not commensurate with what's required in startup land government procurement is extremely slow. This is true, unfortunately, in defense as well. It's generally contract negotiation over the better part of a year, if you're lucky. Generally, it will go well over a year. That kind of acquisition cycle is the cycle in which startups are born, live and die. And the idea that new funding routes and new funding mechanisms that facilitate better engagement uh, is an important message, but it is, to be fair, one that's being recognized. Tanya Monroe is the new chief defense scientist is talking about this. I think their new motto is more together or something. And that's focused on the idea of better engagement because traditionally in Australia, defense research was handled both in terms of internal activity and external funding by an organization called DSTG or DSTO in the past Defense Science Technology Organization, then group. And this organization has to wear many hats. It has to provide strategic advice. It has to do internal work. It has to fund research. That was a bit of a challenge. And I think uh, this more together strategy is suggesting more of an outward focus instead of just an inward defense only focus. And uh, I'm very excited about that. I hope it opens new opportunities through streamlined vehicles in order to allow us to engage with defense without going through a 24-month acquisition cycle.
1: All right. I'm conscious of time, Michael Bissick. Thanks very much for joining us today. But I wanted to, I guess I wanted to finish with a fairly open-ended question. And I I ask a lot of... It's not a good way to, you know, do a time box. (laughs) (laughs) Look, we'll see. I wanted to, to ask you in terms of Q-Control, just as a kind of a, a microcosm of, a, of deep tech and the quantum sector, what's your biggest roadblock in terms of a government policy? What's your biggest challenge? What should government be doing more of? What should they be doing less of? You know, we covered some of this during the interview. But to finish off, what have we not talked about that you want to be seeing done at a policy level?
0: So let me, I'll, I'll even take off my Q control hat and I'll only, I'll try to be uh, altruistic for the community. I really want to see a change in the way we look at research commercialization at the university level. Universities are the redheaded stepchild of uh, the sector right now, which is really unfortunate. And, you know, they're being pushed very hard to commercialize, which we understand. At the same time, they're having a the rug pulled out from under them in terms of funding for research support. So the natural thing to do is to try to a commercialize and b make revenue off doing so and that approach by which one locks up ip and then tries to license it out to high bidders it's just the death of of actual innovation right in fact so much so i was reading up on some old documents yesterday that i found that in 2017 blackbird had a statement on their on their website and it's so good i think i you know i think it even warrants me reading it to you <laughs> It was uh, it was a statement of values and, and what they like. But one of the statements of values again, 2017, no university spinouts, no Perth stockbrokers. We shudder at the thought of patented technology being handed off to an experienced team looking to commercialize through a backdoor listing by a Perth stockbroker, shilling a reverse takeover of a failed mining company. Now that's uh, it's obviously quite tongue in cheek, but it's uh, it's indicative of what the general model of research commercialization has been treat the technology as the asset, and then shield that to some third party in order to make money. It fundamentally doesn't work. And right now, we need to change the policy setting such that universities are not incentivized to pursue that approach. They're responding in a totally rational way to the restrictions they have. They can't charge more fees because they're regulated. They can't do more of this. They can't do more of that. And so the opportunities that are there, obviously international students and potential research commercialization licensing deals, but the the idea of the founder being involved in that has been completely removed. So we need to change policy settings around research translation to allow universities to perform their core functions of generating and disseminating knowledge and then ensuring that translation of technology does not become a value capture exercise. It becomes an exercise in delivering public good. And that can be done by saying, you're an academic, you're a founder, you wanna start a commercial entity. Here, go. Take the IP, go and build something and say nice things about the University of X, right? That's the model that's been taken at the University of Waterloo. It's called Creator Own Content. It's been exceptionally successful. The area between Waterloo and Toronto has become a real tech startup hub, quantum technology, and all sorts of other things. You would never expect it, but it's really based on the fact that there are no roadblocks to scientists and researchers building new commercial ventures. And I think we need to set policy here in the right way in order to facilitate that. Right now, all of the language is about IP, 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 IP which is idiotic because nobody invests in a patent portfolio, people invest in founders when you're talking about the private sector. So I wanna see that, uh, that transition as a matter of urgency.
1: I think that's a good place to leave this. Michael Biersick, thank you very much for joining us today on the Commercial Disco.
0: My pleasure, thanks for having me. All right,
1: Thanks, Michael you
0: enjoyed this episode of the commercial disco please like subscribe and leave a five star review wherever you heard us and head on over to our website innovationoz.com to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech innovation and policy and reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show until the next time this is the commercial disco Wishing you a great week ahead.